Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number, 877-973-7425. Really glad to have you with me. I've been mentioning that David Brooks column. I I read a, a chunk of it. In the first hour, there are some ancillary details to it that, that I want to get into uh, right now. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, you should get the show notes, text data to 33777, get the show notes. But the headline in the New York Times by David Brooks on anti-Trumpers and the modern meritocracy. And David Brooks essentially asks the elite of America to consider maybe they are not the good guy in the story, and maybe their actions have provoked Trumpism. I, uh, we can, I'll be candid with you. I get frustrated on occasion as I grow this radio program. And I know other friends in radio have the frustration as well. Um, so much of it depends on who you know and your connections. Um, I started off being a lawyer, and through my law firm, was connected to a group of guys starting a website called Red State. Um, I was asked to take over. I became the editor of Red State. I left my law job to be the editor of Red State, which led to a job at CNN for three years, which led to a job in talk radio, uh, and then transitioned to Fox News for five years. And I have, to a degree, I do think paid somewhat of a penalty for living in middle Georgia. I I live and typically broadcast from Macon, Georgia. For a long time, I had to drive up to my studio in Atlanta uh, every day. And they were kind enough to put a connection in my house and I could do the show from my house. I now have a very nice office. have a great view. If you see the videos, you can see the view out my office of downtown Macon, Georgia, where I tend to broadcast from for the longest time. My flagship station, WSB, when I was local host, are like, don't tell people that. Just tell people you're from South Atlanta. But I, I live in Macon. I was on the city council. I ran for office. I got elected. I was a lawyer here. I did criminal law. I did, I did business law. And then I got hired by CNN for a while, and their pitch at the time was that uh, we're a news network headquartered in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, we have nobody on our network who sounds like they're from there or relates to people who live there. And that was my segue in. And then I get into talk radio and, and slowly over time syndicate into radio. And I've had deep frustrations about the growth of the show. I've got a great syndicator now, uh, but it, it really has depended on who you know and your connections over time. And being in New York gives you an advantage. It doesn't matter how good you are. A lot of it is the connections you have, and, and there there are frustrations there. I've got those frustrations. You know, I, I was a lawyer. I was a writer. I was a blogger. I was a TV guy. This job right here behind this microphone, it is the only job I've ever had in my life where on a regular basis, I think, you know what? I actually am good at this. Some of you may disagree, but I know what my ratings are. And when you're in a business that is ratings-driven, I can assure you I wouldn't have the job I have unless I was good at my job and kept the ratings. I actually, objectively, am good at this. I, I honestly, I genuinely believed that anyone could do this. What I do does not, to me, seem extraordinary. I sit behind this microphone for three hours a day in a room with no one around. There's literally no one in this office other than me. 
and I talk for three hours to people. And part of what I do intentionally is relate to people because we live in an age of isolation. And though I'm not with you, I am with you by voice and radio is so intimate because everything comes through the passion of your voice, your tone and your speaking, your, your anger, your humility, your humor, your, your boredom, your enthusiasm, it all comes by the tone of voice. It becomes very intimate. I, I remember distinctly when I first realized this phenomenon at a restaurant in Atlanta that if I sat and I faced people and I talked, people would look over. They're like, that. he sounds familiar, but I don't know who it is. But if my back was turned, they immediately knew who it was. They knew my voice. When my face and voice were together, didn't help, and, and then my stupid flagship station decided to put my face all over billboards around Atlanta to ruin it for me. <laughs> and they were like, oh, my God, I look at your face every day. You really do have a face for radio. It's all WSB's fault. <laughs> now, everybody knows where to look at that, and I was on Fox and CNN. But nonetheless, I, I, I those billboards, there's still one up in Atlanta somewhere, and it, it's, it's way past time. It advertises my old show from 4 to 7 in the evening, and every once in a while, Someone sends me a picture of it, and it hadn't been taken down yet. But yeah, I, I started that way to say I, I, I am in a weird world. I am from Jackson, Louisiana. Jackson, Louisiana is a small town. You know, Jason Aldean's try this a small town. Jason Aldean is from Macon, Georgia, where I'm broadcasting from. Macon, Georgia has stoplights. The town that I grew up in tried to put a stoplight in in the 70s, and it scared the horses, and they took it out. I'm not making that up. They now, on the outskirts of town, by a Dollar General, have a stoplight, but that's a new addition. When I was growing up, there was no stoplight. The town is small. It's about 1,000 people, but you have to count the mental patients at the state hospital to get to 1,000 people. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in some way related to everyone else. It's a small town. And I went from there to Dubai when I was five years old. Charlie, I don't know if you know this or not, but I grew up in Dubai. <laughs> we would fly back and forth to Louisiana during the summer. We'd, we'd go home in the summer and, and go back to Dubai uh, at the end of summer for school. I have been to more countries than states. I got a scholarship to go to Duke University. I chose instead to go to Mercer University, my alma mater. And I stayed there for law school. They were much nicer people. At Duke, everyone wanted you to know you needed them. They did not need you. At Mercer, they were very nice. And I stayed. And I liked it. And I stayed in the town. I stayed in the city. I, I married my wife. We've chosen to raise our family here. And I've turned down offers to move to New York. And I've turned down offers to move to Washington. I should be among that elite. And I chose not to be. And it's always funny to encounter people online. This happened to me yesterday when I was uh, discussing the Trump indictment and the flaws I saw in the indictment. So it was like, well, where did you go to law school? As if I did, actually I did go to law school and I practiced criminal law, you idiot with your pronouns in your bio. People, I remember at CNN and at Fox, people would have these conversations. Be like, oh yeah, I remember, I, I remember going to this particular place uh, in the Middle East, and they'd look at me incredulously like, who are you to have been there? I grew up over there. 
say all that to say that that the the stereotyping of the elite in this country is one of the worst things any of us encounter. People talk about racial identity in this country, the elite in this country, the intellectual elite, and they lean to the left tend to be far more racist than anyone else you encounter. You know, John Hamm, the actor, a, a, a progressive, a liberal, uh, he's been seen a lot in the metro Atlanta area. Bill Maher asked him about Atlanta. You know what he said? They just stood out of my mind. He said the thing that shocked him about the city of Atlanta is that black and white people all eat at the same restaurants. There is a level of racism among the progressive elite in this country, and they disguise it as paternalism. The white elite in this country, they're very passionate about DEI, not because they really care, but because it makes them feel good about themselves. They really don't want diversity. They don't want equity. They don't want inclusion unless you think exactly like them. It's all very superficial. They want a black person on the staff as long as that black person thinks exactly like them on every issue. You find this across the board. The elite in this country are the most bigoted, insular people in the country. But there's a danger for the rest of us. And it is that we begin to reflect their insularity. Do you know the best predictor of happiness in America? There's new research out. The best predictor of happiness in America is Americans who are married with children. They tend to be better off financially. They tend to be better off with their health. They tend to be better off with their outlook on life. They tend to suffer depression less. Healthy, happy families breed healthy, happy people. And increasingly, the elite become single and bitter and, and they, they don't want to get married. They want to stay isolated. They, they want to stay insular. They, they want to stay single and mingle. And we're seeing people outside the elite begin to behave that way, that, that the it's a, a trickle-down cultural phenomenon from the elite. The way that the upper echelons of society work, everyone else thinks they can. And this was part of David Brooks's is, uh, piece is that, you know, we, we got rid of the, the whole idea that you shouldn't have children out of wedlock. That was bigoted of us to say, if you want to have kids out of wedlock, have kids out of wedlock. Except one of the number one indicators of poverty in America is, did you have children out of wedlock? The poor can't really get ahead when they don't have a family institution around them. So the rich got rid of the moral constraints of children out of wedlock, and they themselves kept getting married while others didn't, and it ruined lives or drugs. Do you know how many rich cocaine addicts there are in this country, and they can get away with it, and they can pay for rehab, and they have support structures around them to let them get away with it and not get arrested? You find some poor schlub middle class who's a CPA and he gets addicted to cocaine, good luck. It's going to ruin his career. It's going to ruin his marriage. It's going to ruin his kids. And he's probably going to take his life. The upper income echelons of America can do drugs and lead a hedonistic lifestyle and pay little consequence. Everybody else has lots of consequence. That money insulates them. Their surroundings insulate them. They are arrogant and they are racist. And they refuse to acknowledge it. They refuse to accept it. They impute racism to everyone else but themselves. And you risk the danger of emulating them 
because they're held up as a as a cultural symbol. These elite, we're supposed to be like them. Everybody wants to go to the Ivy League. No, you don't. You don't need to do that. In fact, you can live a very good life. You can take the Dave Ramsey model, manage your money, pay down your debt, and actually have a better life. You get married, you stay married, you have kids, you're going to be happier than the elite. And they're going to hate you. They're going to hate your children, and they're going to put up roadblocks to your success. You know, and again, I look back on my own career. Um, I have never really been in a clique or a tribe, per se. And that has hurt me to various degrees over time. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I will be just as critical of my own side as the other side. And people want me to pick a lane and stay in it. You can't criticize your side. You can't criticize Trump. You're conservative talk radio. You got to be for Trump, all these things. It just, it, it's absolutely crazy. The amount of people who absolutely expect you to be in a lane and stay in that lane, you're never allowed out of that lane as opposed to being an independent, unique individual. And it's very often the elite who are the ones who expect you to pick a lane and stay in that lane. They don't, they don't like people to challenge them. And, and I guess what I'm saying is it becomes, there becomes so much pressure to conform to the ways the elite want everyone else to, to be. You should not do that. You should be a unique individual. Think for yourself. Don't be in a tribe. Be willing to hold your own side accountable. Be willing to call balls and strikes on your own side. And get married, stay married, have kids, don't be single for the rest of your life, and you'll be amazed at how far you'll actually thrive in life. Because at the end of all things, having a support structure of good family around you is going to do you a whole lot more good than having a degree from Harvard. Having non-drug-addled children who actually go to church and believe in something greater and better than themselves is far better than having a kid like Hunter Biden in your life. The elite will get their comeuppance, and they're starting to realize it with the way they, they've advanced against uh, the middle class, against those who didn't go to college, the way they want those who didn't go to college to bail them out of their college loans. They're starting to get their comeuppance. They're starting to face a hell on earth of there are more of us than there are of them because those of us who aren't like them, we tend to get married and stay married and have kids and procreate and eventually breed them out of existence and also a lot of our kids, some of them may wander off and become progressive, but a lot of them stay with us and stick to our values and wind up voting, and we outnumber them. And I don't think they're going to have the humility to recognize what David Brooks wrote at the end of his piece, that final bit. It's the thing that echoes today on social media among the left considering his piece. We can condemn the Trumpian populace all day until the cows come home. But the real question is, when will we stop behaving in ways that make Trumpism inevitable? I suspect when it's dominant, whether it's with Trump or someone else, it will be thanks to the behavior of the elite. I am a small businessman. The company that I run for my radio show, it's a small business. I've got employees. I don't have HR. You may be in that situation and you may really need HR. Well, you may want to talk to Bambi. When running a business, your employees can create all sorts of interesting situations and they could get you in trouble. What happens when two employees are squabbling? One of them smells bad all the time. What do you do? How do you navigate the rules? With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month. They're available by phone, email, real-time chat. 
Onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance. Your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. Let Bambi handle your employees for you. Their HR autopilot automates important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Listen, you want U.S.-based HR managers who give you experience, expertise, a personal touch you need to make it seem like they're a part of your team. They can cost eighty grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 a month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now. Type in Eric Erickson under podcast when you sign up. It'll help you. It'll help your company grow. It'll help you keep peace of mind. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bam. B-E-E.com. Bambi.com. Type in Eric Erickson. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number 877-973-7425. Let's go to the phone. Patricia, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Uh Hi there. First time caller, but I do listen to you uh, throughout the week. Not Thank every you. day, but anyway, um, my question is: How does anything uh, with Trump, uh, in comparison to uh, Clinton hiding these secret tapes in a sock drawer and keeping them behind his socks uh, so nobody would see them? Why? Why is nobody going after that? You know, you know, or even mentioning it, for that it, matter. Also, I, hold on. This is a twofold question, then I'll just hang up and I'll listen to you on my Bluetooth. Um, does the constant going after Trump actually open the door now for other presidents uh, to go after former presidents? Well, I mean, obviously it depends on the statute of limitations as to whether— not you can go back and and I I gotta say again I, I agree with my buddy Dan McLaughlin who writes at National Review that um, the scandal is not so much that they're going after Trump for the classified documents or really even January sixth the scandal is that we didn't go after Bill Clinton or we didn't go after Hillary Clinton or yes. we, we didn't go after all these other people that there is two standards of justice but it's really notable it's the Republicans who held their fire. The Democrats have rushed forward in the name of of, of uh, vindication or what have you, and I think we're going to see Republicans from here on out uh, move with gusto in the same way. Precedent matters. Merrick Garland has chosen, despite all of the evidence, to not have a special prosecutor uh, investigate Hunter and Joe Biden. At this point, it's clear Joe Biden lied He was involved in phone calls with Hunter Biden's business partners. He can claim he was only talking about the weather or not, but it was really whether or not he was going to get paid is what he talked about, it seems. If Merrick Garland is not going to put a special prosecutor in place, no Republican attorney general ever going forward should hire a special prosecutor to investigate a sitting president. If Merrick Garland can't do it, No Republican should ever do it. These precedents matter, and that's the new precedent, thanks to the Democrats. Did you know China has made it a priority to teach students financial literacy starting in preschool? Financial literacy isn't taught in our elementary schools, and parents lack the resources to teach it at home. American kids are yet again being left behind. Now there's a great way for parents and grandparents to help the kids they love learn about finance, thanks to the sensibles. And at bcs-kids.com, the Sensibles are a team of animated superheroes who help kids age 6 to 12 develop smart money habits in a fun way. 
bcs-kids.com was created to channel this multimedia resource to kids everywhere. Buy a subscription for your loved ones, and each month, they'll get a Sensibles kit in the mail with an entertaining DVD, comic book, and activities. Digital subscriptions are also available. They'll also get access to an interactive website with a library of lessons, fun activities, and more. Want 20% off the monthly subscription costs? Visit at bcs-kids.com. Enter the promo code ERIC, my name, E-R-I-C-K. It's the sensible thing to do. Subscribe today at bcs-kids.com. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. There's a development happening right now uh, in the situation in, in Niger. And let me just tell you, uh, again, going back to the David Brooks piece, how how the, the, the elite in this country frame words, we used to be able to use English to pronounce names. Uh, no, no one says Paris. Uh, we say Paris. Winston Churchill said that if you wanted him to say Paris instead of Paris, you should have gone back in time and told his mother to give him birth and give birth to him in, in France. Um, it, my, my mom texted me during the show and I was talking about the American embassy in Niger pulling people out. And she said, you know, on TV now they say Niger. Yeah, they say Niger, but I'm an American. So I say Niger. That's how I've always said it. Next door is Nigeria, not Nigeria either. It, it's Niger. A Niger coup leader has met with Wagner uh, in uh, a Wagner allied junta in Mali. One of the things that the Russians are doing now is they're recolonizing Africa. <clears throat> and they have set up um, military dictatorships in places like Mali and elsewhere. Mali's transitional president, Asima Goida, hosted Monday um, a large. Um, uh, Niger military delegation on Wednesday, according to pictures in a statement. Um, the meeting was part of a complex regional context, the uh, Mali presidency said, and thanked authorities for the support and accompaniment since the seizure of power. So you've got a coup in Niger and a coup in Mali that has taken over and set up a military dictatorship, and they're funded by the Russian mercenaries. And Joe Biden continues to lead from behind as the Russians set up shop in Africa. Now, it's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about something else. I mentioned uh, last week, and I haven't figured out the logistics of being able to do this, and so I just haven't, and I may have to do some standalone videos, but I got asked to teach Sunday school. Uh, and the class I'm teaching, they're over 60 class, and it's kind of funny because my daughter, I told her the theme for the class, what, last year they focused on how do you live in a world increasingly hostile to faith, and this year the theme is how do you equip Christians in a world increasingly hostile to faith, and and I told my kid the class I was teaching, she says, at that, at that age, aren't they already equipped? <laughs> Shouldn't you be teaching that to the young classes? Yeah, fair point. Everyone got the humor. Uh, last week, I talked about Amos in the class. I, I I taught on Amos. Amos is my favorite book of the Bible. I encourage you to read it. It's such a good book. Do you know? I, I think it's I think it's Barna. Uh, there was a study of evangelical churches in America, and I know I've got a lot of preachers who listen to the show. So just listen to me on this one. Uh, the survey said Amos, the book of Amos in the Old Testament, is the least likely book to be preached on in an evangelical church, you are more likely to get a sermon out of the book of Numbers in a Bible-believing evangelical church 
than the book of Amos. The reason is because progressives and progressive denominations have embraced Amos as their own. So you are very likely to hear a sermon based on Amos in the United Church of Christ, in the Episcopal Church, in parts of the United Methodist Church, uh, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. You're very likely to hear sermons based on Amos, and the response from Evangelical Orthodox Bible-believing churches is not to preach on Amos. And the reason is because Amos is considered a social justice warrior. Amos's message is you have to let justice flow like a river, that you must take care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the refugees. If you actually pay attention to Amos, it's a deeply conservative book uh, that the social justice warriors of today have gotten wrong. Amos is essentially saying you've turned your, your hearts towards idols, not towards God. You have uh, embraced causes to make you look good to the world and rejected the causes that uh, get you right with God. It's a very compelling message. And Amos essentially says that that God's the God of everybody. Now, this week I'm going to teach on Jonah, and I'm not going to teach about the whale, and, and you should know I am a, a biblical inerrantist. I do believe Jonah was swallowed by a giant fish, uh, not necessarily a whale, but a giant fish and, and preserved by God. Yes, I, I look, I believe in Adam and Eve, and I think the, the story of Noah is real. I think the story of Jonah is real as well. Uh, but I'm not focusing on that. I, I'm focusing on how he's running away, and in running away, uh, he converts all these people who are pagans. These people aren't Jews on this boat. And by the end of the first chapter, all these people are proclaiming Yahweh. They're they're using the 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 name the Jews uh, have for God, Yahweh. They're not just saying Lord like the the people in um, in Nineveh do. They just generic God. They refer to Jonah's generic God. It's it's not a real conversion. These these people on the boat, however, they're actually calling out to the Jewish God. And and what, how do they do it? Well, because Jonah's running away. He's running away. Uh, he he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to go do the prophecy. He doesn't want to go do what God told him to do. He's running away from God and converts all these people just by running away. Now. I start there and tell you that I'm I'm preaching or not really preaching I'm teaching on Sunday in this class and I apologize if you're in the class listening right now I'm giving away the game here for you you won't be surprised but there's a study in the Wall Street Journal there's a report in the Wall Street Journal why middle-aged Americans aren't going back to church and I find myself in this group and this is more confession time than anything We struggle in my family to go to church. We typically will go to Sunday school and not church. And the reason is because we have just gone through like nonstop, we're all sick. Somebody's sick in the house. Uh, somebody gets sick. And it's just like nonstop. It happens and, and we're just in that period of life. And everybody goes through periods of life right now. So this, this story in the Wall Street Journal is why middle-aged Americans aren't going back to church. Americans in their 40s and 50s often identify with the religion, but they're also in the thick of raising kids, caring for aging parents, juggling demanding jobs that spill into the weekends. During the pandemic, many got out of the habit of going regularly to religious services and didn't resume. Some have been drifting away before or became disillusioned by church scandals or positions on social issues. The percentage of people aged 35 to 57 who attended a worship service during the week, either in person or online, fell to 28% in 2023, down from 41% in 2020. 
This was the largest percentage point drop of all age groups examined in a survey of 2,000 adults conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And I got to tell you, getting out of the habit of going to church on Sunday, it has been so hard to get back into the habit and then to have the curveballs of illness. My wife on her chemo pill, she has these weird side effects. And there are days we are pulling out of the driveway and suddenly her stomach just goes to war with her and she's got to go back to the house. And, or the kids get sick or I get sick or you're just feeling exhausted from the weekend. You've worn yourself out on a Saturday trying to get up on a Sunday and and I feel guilty about it. I often feel guilty about it. One of the great things about me teaching Sunday school for four weeks and being committed to it is that I got to be at church on Sunday. I, I'm happy to take the opportunity to teach on Sunday because it forces me to have to go to church. Because when push comes to shove some days, I just want to sleep. I'm exhausted by the end of the week. And these next few weeks are going to be so exhausting. I've got the gathering coming up, the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Then I've got to teach Sunday school on Sunday the 20th. And then I'll be back in Atlanta on the 21st for a Mets game. I'm going to be exhausted. The last thing I want to do is wake up early on a Sunday and go to church. And I hate to be that way. It sounds terrible saying it out loud, but it's true. But everyone goes through seasons of life. The question is, do you get through the season of life or not? But one of the other interesting things along the way that's happening with people in their 40s and 50s right now who are leaving churches is how many of them aren't leaving the faith, but also how many of them are. And do you know where a person who leaves the faith most likely goes? And this is a really telling point. When someone stops going to church and they give up on faith, do you know what they do typically? And I'm talking seven out of 10 of them, 70% of the people who walk away from a church life and give up on worship life and give up on faith, 70% of them, do you know where they go? Politics. They've traded one religion for another. When you walk out the door of the church, you're either eventually going to go back to it or you're going to start going to political rallies that are going to satisfy you. And the problem is, of course, politics is a cruel mistress and an even crueler God. Uh, You win some, you lose some. When you lose them, you're more likely to think the other side has stolen it from you. There's no forgiveness. There's certainly no grace in politics these days. It's a whole different world. So, you know, I'm we're trying to do better, and we, we really want our kids to be in a worshipful habit on Sunday. We, we really want our kids to go to church on Sunday. And my daughter, she's I, I think she's planning on going to my alma mater now and staying at home. We're trying to convince her that it, it would be good for her to live in the dorms, and I'm trying to convince her that uh, whatever you do, actually going to a church is would be a good thing. And, and she said the, a couple of weeks ago, she said, Dad, if I do this, are you okay with me finding a different church to go to? Like, yes, yes. Go live your own life. Find your own church. Find one you feel connected to. I, w- I would l- love them to go to church with me, but I'd much prefer them to go to church than to go to church with me. I am concerned, though, because there, there's a great quote the other day in a story um, about uh, politics and churches. And a a Southern Baptist pastor in Ohio said that um, when a member of their congregation goes full MAGA, that is, they are fully 
on board the politics of Donald Trump, they tend to leave the church. It is an all-consuming cult personality, and I don't mean that insultingly. I don't mean that about the president. It's just y'all know the people I'm talking about. They get fully involved in the politics of their politics. It becomes a religion to them. And it doesn't matter whether they're full-on progressive or full-on hardcore Trump supporter. That tends to be the dominant thing in their life. It is, it's weird to me to see friends of mine, longtime friends of mine who are never into politics, and they've suddenly gotten into politics on the left or the right, and it's all they can talk about. They can't have a conversation about the weather. It's all about politics. It becomes all-consuming. And people across the board, left and right, not center, but left and right, they are becoming – uh, idolaters worshiping politics, and it becomes the central axis of their life. Where for a person of faith, church, their faith, their life revolves around church. Unless you're like me, and and our our attendance has been sporadic, unless I'm teaching on Sunday. But it's always there. It's always mindful. You're reading scripture and stuff, and instead you're reading political speeches. You're listening for the latest clip on YouTube. You're looking for the latest memes. Memes have become like hymns to the religious. Memes have become hymns to the uh, overly political. It's, they don't share the, the lyrics of In Christ Alone. They share the latest Trump meme. It's a really weird thing, y'all. It's a really weird thing we're going through right now. And I'll tell you what it ultimately is. So many people after COVID are trying to find some meaning in life again. Because so many people, things are not normal now, and people want us to think that it's the new normal the weights at restaurants, the cost of things, which supposedly the new normal. Nobody wants this to be the new normal. The only people who want it to be the new normal are the Democrats who provoked it and don't want to be held accountable for it. And they're just, yeah, it's the after COVID new normal. Nobody wants that stuff. All I will tell you, I'm not telling you to go to church. I'm not trying to proselytize you. I am just saying that if you are making politics the thing around which your life is centered, you need to rethink it because it gives you very little satisfaction long-term and demands very much from you. It is not healthy for you. There are a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who haven't gone back to church after COVID. Many of them will over time. They're going through a season of life with teenage kids and sickness in their own lives and dealing with parents, and they'll eventually return. They haven't walked away. But a lot of those who've walked away, 70% of them have gotten involved in politics. They've traded worship of the creator of all things for an idol. And it's going to eat their souls. And at the end of the day, at the end of their life, it's not going to offer them anything in return. As I said, politics is a cruel mistress. Politics is an even crueler thing to worship. It's a crueler God. You need to prioritize your life not around politics. Prioritize it around your church. Prioritize it around your family. God forbid, prioritize it around travel ball. Just don't prioritize it around politics. You will be a miserable person. You will. You won't even realize how miserable you are until it's too late. Just food for thought. We'll be right back. Hello. I hope you're doing well here at the end of the show. I I, I keep getting emails from people saying um, you, you got to record your, your Sunday school lessons. I, I'll do something. Um, but it's just that that room was so crowded with people. I, I wasn't going to come in and be one of those people who sets up my ring light and 
my iPhone to record myself, but I'll figure something out for people. Right now, I got to, okay, at the end of the day, oh, y'all, I, I just, oh, man, I can't really get too deeply into this, but I got to talk about it. I just feel sorry for and embarrassed for Rudy Giuliani. America's mayor, he was such a hero after 9-11. He was considered a, a front runner for the GOP. He led the polls throughout 2007 uh, until he imploded. And what has happened to this man? Rudy Giuliani was sued for sexual harassment by Noel Dunphy, a former staffer at his firm. The lawsuit includes a wide array of disturbing allegations from behaving erratically while drunk to exposing himself non-consensually to demanding sexual favors to making various sexist and racist remarks. Giuliani denied everything, smeared Dunphy, and asked the court to strike portions of the lawsuit and sanction her and her lawyer. Dunphy and her lawyer responded on Monday by asking for Giuliani and his lawyer to be sanctioned, and they included audio transcripts of Giuliani saying exactly the things he denied saying. And y'all, it's really creepy. Um, talking about, well, the male reproductive organs of Jews and Italians that the that the Italian one, they keep using it after they get married, so it keeps getting bigger like him and uh, Jewish men stop after getting married, and so it shrinks, and um, it just, it's, um, my gosh, y'all, it, it's, I can't really go into it, but it's embarrassing, and it's like that the crankpot theories that he articulated after the election, I mean, there was some really just dumb stuff that he, he at the time, I think, really believed it. Uh, he believed some of the stuff he was saying, like the the um, interference with the, the spy agencies and the Italians, and then he remember he had the um, he had the press conference at the Four Seasons landscaping place. Uh, they thought it was the Four Seasons hotel, it seems, and they showed up at the landscaping place instead. And and then he had the the hair dye start leaking when he got hot and got sweaty, and it started leaking out of his face. I just this was this was America's mayor, and now he's a joke. I mean, he's the punchline of jokes. It's embarrassing what happened to this guy. Who gave him advice? This goes back to what I was saying. When you make politics your God, as much as politics is a cruel mistress, politics is an even crueler God. And Giuliani is now, he worships in politics. He's just in politics. He has no outlet other than politics. And this is just embarrassing and sad to see America's mayor, the hero of 9-11, um, become the punchline of a bunch of bad jokes and be exposed as being just a not great person. My goodness, it's just sad.